0: up your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 6. We're going to finish that chapter this morning, Lord willing. I am very pumped up on the study of Stephen. I told the ladies yesterday, to the horror of my daughter, who attends that study, that I had an announcement to make. And then I I got everybody's attention when I said that, you know, I have an announcement to make. (laughs) And then I told them that I had fallen in love this past week. You see my daughter's face. (laughs) But I did. I really did. Uh, I have fallen in love with a man named Stephen. And I know that's a strange way to put it, but I, I, I just never have studied Stephen's life before. And I admire this man like almost none other. My favorite had always been, besides the Lord Jesus... My favorite Bible character had always been Daniel. Daniel. But poor Daniel, I think, has now been replaced. (laughs) In my heart. (laughs) No, I love them both. But Stephen is an amazing man. Amazing. Far beyond what I... Most of the time we think of him as the first martyr of the church. But there is so much more to this man than just that. So we're going to look today. Lesson number 17 in our study of the early church... Um, through the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at the ministry of Stephen. I have subtitled this lesson, The Face of an Angel, and we'll be covering verses 8 to 15 of chapter 6. So let's begin. There she is, the missing leader. (laughs) We're going to start with a word of prayer, so would you bow with me, please? Father, thank you once again for the wonderful privilege you give us to look into the amazing revelation that you have provided for us in your holy word. May we never take for granted our freedom to open your word together and to even have our own copy of your word. And now we pray, Father, that as we consider today and in the lessons to come, the ministry, the message, and the martyrdom of your great servant Stephen, I ask that we would be so drawn to him, as you did with me this past week, that he becomes a pattern to us for living a Christ-like life. And we even can long to follow Stephen in every other way, um, even if any among us is ever called to die for our faith, because he certain, certainly followed you not only in his life, but in his death. And we pray, as we always do, that the Spirit would be our teacher this morning. I pray that he would convey to our hearts what my words are unable to convey because I always fall short of expressing myself because of human limitations. But may your Spirit take over and speak in supernatural ways to every single one of us, as you alone know the hearts, according to every individual soul and every individual need. May your Spirit speak, and may this be an hour that truly does Um, lift you up lord jesus may we commit this day and every day of our lives to you we pray in your name amen in our continuing discussion of the work of the resurrected lord jesus christ by his spirit through his church we come now to a transitional character who i told you already his name is stephen We were introduced to him previously in our lesson last week on verses 1 to 7 of chapter 6 because he was the first of seven men chosen by the Jerusalem church and approved by the apostles to help in the care of the ever-increasing body of believers. And now with the remainder of chapter 6 and the entirety of chapter 7, which if you look at chapter 7 is a long chapter, and even the first few verses of chapter 8, Stephen is the main character. That's a lot of bible material for one man. The name Stephen in Greek is Stephanos. If your name is Stephanie or you're married to a Stephen or you have a son named Stephen or a grand whatever his your that name means Stephanos means a crown or a garland. A Stephanos was the rewarding crown that was given to a victor in the Olympic Games. It was the reward for the winner, the individual who ran the race as the first and foremost to the finish line. They received a Stephanos. Um, In Vines it says that it was a token, or it means a token of public honor for distinguished service. And when you find the word Stephanos used in the New Testament epistles, it refers to such things as a crown of life, or it speaks of a crown of joy, or um, glory, and triumph. And all those things are so applicable to the man who had this very appropriate name, Stephanos. When they put the crown of thorns on Jesus' head, you know what Greek word was used for that crown? Stephanos. Not diadem, but Stephanos. They were mocking him, remember? Oh, here's the victor. Here's, you know. That's the word. It's just so appropriate for this first of the seven men who were selected by the church. Men of honest report, of great integrity, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. Very, very appropriate. Not only was he crowned with the first martyr's crown of the church age, but he was also a genuine victor in many other ways. He was, do you know that he was the first Christian apologist? You know, when um, the study of uh, apology, it sounds, to us nowadays, it sounds like you're, you're sorry for something, right? But apologetics is the study of the defense of Scripture, you know, giving an answer for that hope that is in you. Stephen was not only a great orator, but he was an apologist. He was the first Christian apologist. Now we learned some things, we did learn some things last week about Stephen's character, which I want to quickly review this morning, and then we're going to discuss some additional information about his character that we learn in the rest of chapter 6, and then his expanded ministry. He started out as basically a deacon, right? A table server, a servant of the church. But his, his ministry expanded beyond that. We're going to discuss that today. But w- before we do all that, I want to ask a question. Why? We know that the, the Holy Spirit does everything with purpose. Every word, every jot, and every tittle in Scripture is with divine purpose. So we want to ask ourselves why the Spirit inspired Luke to present more information to us on the, mar- the, the ministry, the message, and the martyrdom Of Stephen than any other death. Why do why do we have more information on the death of Stephen and the stuff that the information that led up to it than we do anyone else except the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? Why so much information? You know, the first apostle who ever died, who was martyred, who was it? Who was the first apostle to be martyred? Anybody know? Yes, James. James, the brother of John, the sons of thunder, Jesus called them. I remember when my son was little, when my children were little, and we were playing Bible trivia, and my son got the question, what was the name of the father of James and John? And Chris just instantly said, I know that, Thunder. <laughs> Very serious. He was totally serious. about it. And I thought that was really pretty good, but, of course, their father's name was Zebedee. Um, But James was the first apostle to be martyred, and he's only given two verses about that death. So why do we have so much information about Stephen's death? Well, I think that the reason is found in what came as a result of Stephen's ministry and his message of chapter 7 and his martyrdom. The result was twofold. First of all, Stephen had an irresistible impact on the mind and the heart and the soul and the conscience of a certain man. What was his name? Saul of Tarsus. Now Saul fought tooth and nail. Where does that expression come from? That's a weird expression, isn't it? Tooth and nail? But he did. He fought tooth and nail against Stephen, what Stephen's testimony had done to him because it truly had cut him to the heart. It cut Saul, right to the heart, which is probably why he not only consented to Stephen's death, but then he went about about wrecking havoc on the church. Look over at chapter 8 and verse 3. It says in eight chapter 8, verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. And this is right on the heels of Saul's death. And where was Saul, I mean Stephen's death, where was Saul when Stephen was being stoned to death? Right there probably in charge of the whole thing because everybody came to him to lay down their coats so that they could keep throwing stones to kill Stephen. But verse 3 says, "For As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Now that word for havoc means he was ravishing the church. He was just making, he was angry, and he was arresting people of the church. Of course, it wasn't called the church yet, the sect of the Nazarene. It was the impact of Stephen's testimony on Saul's soul. That is really what the resurrected Lord Jesus, when he met Saul on the road to Damascus, it's really that testimony of Stephen that Jesus was speaking about when he said to him, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Isn't it, Saul? What was he talking about? The prick of his conscience had been bothering Saul ever since his experience with Stephen. That was one of the results of Stephen's ministry. Secondly, his ministry and his message and his martyrdom resulted in the great persecution of the church of Jerusalem, as we just read about. And the Lord also used that in a positive way. The Lord took what man meant for evil you know, the death of Stephen, and he turned it for good because it definitely got the, the heart of, of Saul. And then he also used it in a positive way to scatter his people, the body of believers, into the next two regions of the Great Commission, of Acts 1-8. Remember he said, you know, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, starting where? Jerusalem. Well, and by now the church of Jerusalem is ready to burst. It's so big with people. And it's time for them to go on to where? Judea and Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the the earth. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8 if you're still over there. It says, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except the apostles. Now, the apostles still stayed in Jerusalem, but the rest of the church got scattered abroad, just like the Lord Jesus had wanted them to do, into Judea and Samaria and then eventually the whole world. The death of Stephen gave the enemies of Christ, primarily the Sanhedrin council, boldness, new boldness. Uh, to have an all-out city-wide persecution of the followers of Christ. Why? Well, because when they killed Stephen, when they stoned Stephen to death, guess what? The people did not rise up against them. Remember, they had Peter and John, and they would have done away with them, but they were fearful of the people because they were so popular with the people. Same thing after they beat the 12 apostles they would have done some harm, more harm to them or kept them in prison forever if it wasn't for their fear of the people. But when they, when they stoned Stephen, the people did not rise up against the council. So that emboldened them. And then they really went after the Christians. They arrested them. You know, probably Saul was the, the chief honcho in all of this. They, they went into the homes of the, of the Christians and they hauled off men and women and e- either put them in prison or they beat them as they did with the apostles. They killed some of them. They took away their personal possessions. They confiscated their personal possessions. They, would, they prevented them from uh, attending any of the synagogues. They de them. And that meant you couldn't educate your children and you couldn't um, have employment. And they also prevented them from going anymore into the temple. And that's where they were meeting as a body, right? In Solomon's porch of the temple. So that, you know, the Lord used that to then scatter the people of the church to take the gospel elsewhere. Look over, if you would, at Acts 11, verse 19. Here, Luke again tells us about the expansion of the church following the death of Stephen. He says in 1119, now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenice, which is Phoenicia, and Cyprus, and Antioch preaching the word. So the divine purpose for so much material on Stephen is to show us that his death was the trigger that really shot forth the gospel advance to other places in fulfillment of Christ's command commission for his church. The Lord took what men meant for evil. He's so good at doing this. Took what men meant for evil against Stephen and against the church, and he used it for his own good purpose, which was to get the message of eternal life in him to the rest of the world. So our outline consists of three parts. You should get it later on this afternoon. I was working on it all day yesterday, so... um, I think you'll get it this afternoon. We're going to talk about the character of Stephen. We're going to talk about the corruption against Stephen and then the countenance of Stephen. I hope you don't have to leave early because the countenance of Stephen is the climax of the whole thing. Let's begin with the character of Stephen and look at verses 8 to 10 of chapter 6. I'm sorry, 6, starting at verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Did you know that? Did you know Stephen could perform miracles? There it is. Verse 9. Now this looks like a boring verse that if you're just reading through your Bible, you'd probably just skip over this verse and say, well, well whatever that's talking about not, doesn't sound very important, but it is. It is. It says, then there arose. And you know, whenever there is an arising, in the New Testament that isn't the arising of Jesus out of the tomb. Remember when Caiaphas rose up? It's usually about something negative, you know, anger. It says there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia. And that's not speaking of China, that Asia, but Asia minor where Turkey is today. And what were they doing? What were all these synagogues doing? Disputing with Stephen. Now, that word in the Greek means debate, but heated debate. What started out as a debate became heated so that it was now disputing, argumentation with Stephen. And now, look at this. This is what is so incredible about Stephen. And they, who's the they? All those people of all those synagogues were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. You know, when the apostles called forth the multitude of the disciples unto them back in verse 2 to resolve the murmuring that was taking place between believers over the ministration of the widows, the church had been at that, that time experiencing an evangelism explosion, weren't they? I mean, the church was just growing by leaps and bounds. A mild estimate is that at that time, and I'm talking now before the great company of priests were saved that they estimate there were some 20 to 30,000 20 to 30,000 souls saved in Jerusalem that's a pretty big church <laughs> but not of course not all of those people stayed in the city but many of them did especially probably many of the men stayed in the city for a while in order to be discipled by the apostles and to learn as much as they could about Jesus before they returned to their homes. So, therefore, think of this. It was from a vast multitude of male believers. I don't know how many thousands we would be talking about, but thousands of male believers that the church chose how many men? Only seven men they were to choose. Men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And the very first one on the list, and remember this was a spirit-filled church, other than the murmuring, they were spirit-filled. So we know when they made their choice, they they made it by the Spirit's leading, and they chose men of the highest spiritual caliber. And who was the very first one on the list of men they chose? Stephen! Stephen! And that right there just tells us a whole lot about his character. You know, the church did not get to choose her apostles, did she? She didn't get to choose them. She may not have chosen some of them, especially as they were before the resurrection. But when the church, and who chose the apostles, by the way? Remember, Jesus said, ye have not chosen me, I have chosen you. He chose the apostles. But when the church was first able to choose men as their leaders to serve in the ministry with the apostles, their top pick, their top pick was Stephen. And as I said, that just right there tells us a lot. Um, you know, we actually know more about Stephen than we do most of the apostles. We do know more about him than most of the apostles. How much do you know about some of those guys? Thaddeus, Bartholomew, not not very much. All right, something else very unique about Stephen is that he is the only deacon, quote-unquote. He's not called a deacon. None of them are called deacons in that passage, but they're doing the work. Initially, they're doing the work of a deacon, serving. Um, But he's the only one in verse 5 with a further description given by Luke about his character. What does it tell us? That he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Bible, when it speaks of being filled, that's a reference to being utterly controlled by something, what's ever mentioned after it. I think it's over in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about, you know, if you're filled with wine, a drunkard is under the influence of what? The alcohol. So it's being under the influence or utterly controlled by whatever is mentioned. So Stephen, in Stephen's case, he was utterly under the control of what? Two things, faith and the spirit. And if you're going to be under the control of anything, <laughs> that's the, those are the best two things to be under the control of, your faith and the Holy Spirit. He was totally, let's start with faith, totally controlled by his faith. Now, all Christians, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please God, isn't it? So all Christians have faith in God, the true God, Jehovah God, not some false God, true God. They also have faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, or they wouldn't be Christians. Now, a lot of people call themselves Christians that, you know, aren't Christians, but I'm talking about true, born-again Christians have faith in God, they have faith in Jesus Christ, and they have faith in the scripture. They should have faith in the scripture. Sadly, many of them will pick and choose what they will believe, but we should have faith in the infallible word of God. But most of us are also assailed with doubts, periodic spells of doubt. Know, kind of waver sometimes in our faith even John the Baptist had that problem didn't he and uh, so sometimes we we're, we're kind of like that man who cried out Lord I believe but help thou my unbelief we're like that a lot of the times but this was not the case with Stephen ever he was fully under the control of his faith there was no mixture of faith and doubt in him What is faith? Well, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. Stephen had total conviction about things unseen, the unseen world. He couldn't see it, but he knew it was true. He had the spiritual attribute of being able to live in this present world by his mental adjustment to the unseen world. In other words, he lived the present in light of eternity. And that's how we're to be living too, isn't it? And, and if we really were under the control of our faith, that's how we would be living each and every single day of our lives, living today in light of eternity. Have our focus on that celestial city that's ahead. It would change a lot of things in our lives if we were fully under the control of our faith. He didn't walk by the sight of this world, he walked by his steady faith in the next world. And from his sermon of chapter 7, we're going to learn that he absolutely positively had no doubt about it whatsoever that God was sovereign, that that God was in, in absolute control of history, that it is his story. And assured of that truth, Stephen knew that God, you know, if God is in control of history, which he is, and he knows the end from the beginning, um, then Stephen understood that that meant God was also ruling over the circumstances of his own life. And isn't that true for us? Do you believe God is sovereign? Well, then do you believe he's in utter control over your own life, that there are no accidents with him? He committed, Stephen committed himself to do what God had called him to do. Totally committed to that. And that included declaring what he knew to be true. And he left the consequences to speaking the truth to even the enemies of Christ. He left the consequences of that totally in God's hands. He knew what he was called to do. He knew what the truth was and he would speak it. And whatever happened because of that, well, that was up to God. He was controlled and dominated also by God's Spirit. So he fully trusted and he fully obeyed. And isn't that the key to the whole Christian life? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Well, Stephen, because he was full of faith, um, verse 8 repeats that, that he was full of faith. He was also full of God's favor. If you're full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, you're also full of God's grace. And there are two different um, interpretations, or I should say uh, manuscripts, where it says in verse 8, and Stephen full of faith, I looked him up, and some, some manuscripts say that he was full of charis, which means grace, and some say he was full of pistevo, which is the word for faith. But I got to thinking about it, it doesn't really matter, because if you're full of faith, you're full of grace. If you're full of grace, you're full of faith. And so one and the same. Stephen was full of God's grace. He had God's favor on him. His unlimited riches flowed through Stephen onto others around him, including Saul. You know, it flowed on. No wonder he was called to minister to the widows because he was a gracious man. You know, he was full of grace. But he also had grace on even the enemies of Christ, which we see spilling over on Saul. But he was so full of God's grace in his boldness to speak. It takes God's grace to speak as boldly as he did. You want to see how boldly he spoke? Just turn for a minute. Jump ahead. Look at verse 51 of chapter 7. Now, this is a man with the face of an angel, but he was not, you know, don't get a face of an angel in your mind like a little nice, soft guy, you know. Oh, so angelic. (laughs) He was, but he was also this. Look at verse 51. He's talking to the Sanhedrin council, and he says this, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Wow, that takes grace to be that. I'm sure when he said that, He knew that might be the end of him, right? (laughs) I mean, chances are pretty good that would be the end of you. Um, But he didn't care. He left the consequences in God's hand. Also, Stephen was under the control of God's grace, and this is most evidenced in his last words. Look at uh, verse 60 of chapter 7. He's about to die. He's about to die. He is dying because he has been ruthlessly stoned. Now not, that's not as bad a death as crucifixion, but still, to be stoned to death was not a pleasant thing. I mean, men hurling rocks at you, hitting you in the head, hitting you all over your body. And it took a while to die, unless somebody got you right away. But it took a while, and then they eventually would cover you with so many rocks that you were just buried under the rocks, and that's where you stayed. He's about to die from being stoned to death, and yet he shouts out in a loud voice. Who does that remind you of? Jesus. He shouts out in a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. I don't know about you, but it's difficult to think of greater grace than to forgive the very ones who are killing you. Mm. He was so Christ-like, so very much like our Savior. The second result of being under the influence of his faith and the Holy Spirit is that Stephen, it says in verse 8, was also full of power, full of power. He had amazingly powerful knowledge of the Scripture. Wait till you see his sermon. There is such insight in it. Even the keenest minds of Christ's enemies could not resist the wisdom and the knowledge of Stephen. But his power was also displayed, besides being displayed in his knowledge, it was displayed by great wonders and miracles that he was performing among the people. Now that that's pretty incredible. He was given the ability to to do miracles that absolutely filled the onlookers with wonder and served as confirmation of the divine power and authority behind what he was saying. That's why God, the the resurrected Lord Jesus, allowed Stephen to perform miracles so it would confirm his message, first of all in the synagogues and then before the whole Sanhedrin council. Do you know what this shows us that Stephen was able to perform miracles? He's not an apostle, right? He's a deacon. It shows us that the Lord, in his sovereign providence, at this critical time, when he both began his church and then went on to work in each one of her expansions, you know, from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria and the rest of the world, transforming her, he's in the process of transforming his church from a ministry that was first to the Jews and then second to the Greeks, the Gentiles, that God in his sovereignty did not restrict sign miracles to just the apostles. Well, we should have already known that, shouldn't we? Do you remember in his ministry when he sent out 70 disciples, besides the 12, he sent out 70 in pairs, to go out and, and preach the gospel. He gave them the ability to heal and to cast out demons. Remember when they came back? They gave, I think this is in Luke 10. They gave a report and they were so excited and they told Jesus, wow, even the demons listened to us. We were able to cast out demons. So yes, the Lord had given the ability to do miracles to those 70 men and then, of course, the apostles... Because they were the witnesses to the Jews there in Jerusalem and they needed the miracles to confirm their message, didn't they? And then who else had been able to perform an amazing miracle? Well, the original 120. Do you remember on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and they were able, all of them, to speak languages that they had never known before, had never learned before? gentile languages and dialects all 120 of them were able to speak so it isn't surprising that he allowed Stephen to be able to perform miracles do you know that there are only two other very godly men in the new testament early church other than the apostles and other than Stephen who we just learned about now two other men the lord also gave the ability to perform sign miracles who were they philip Not the Apostle Philip. Of course, he also was able to perform miracles because all the apostles were. But Philip, the second one on the deacon list. Philip, who started out basically as a deacon and then expanded his ministry to become an evangelist. He was able to perform miracles. Acts 8, verses 6 and 7. And the other man besides the apostles with a capital A that could perform miracles was Barnabas. Barnabas! son of consolation. That's in Acts 15, 12. You see, Stephen's ministry and Stephen's martyrdom was used by the Lord to send the church out of Jerusalem. Philip took the gospel to where? Samaria. And so to the Samaritans, he had to show that his message had divine authority and power. So God gave him the gift of performing miracles. And then Barnabas was the first one to accompany Paul, once Saul became Paul, to take the gospel out to the Gentile world. You see, each one of those new phases of church expansion needed to be accompanied by miracles in order to confirm the divine authority of the gospel messengers. Because all of this was before the New Testament was written and completed. So they didn't have the New Testament to point to and confirm their message. So they, God gave them powers. Plus, you know what? You cannot put God in a box, can you? Some people try, but he doesn't fit very well in a box. Now, so far, we know that Peter, Peter has been the main person giving testimony of Christ To Israel. In every sermon and every chapter so far, he did the main speaking. Now, sometimes the others were speaking with him, you know, but he was the main speaker. Peter was a Hebrew Jew. He was born and lived his whole life in the land of Israel. So they're called Hebrew Jews. And he was commissioned to be the apostle to the circumcised, to the Jews, as were the other apostles. But the testimony, except Paul, but the testimony of Peter is beginning to wind down in the book of Acts. While the testimony of Paul to the Gentiles is about to begin unfolding. It was a transitional time in church history. Actually, Stephen's message to the Sanhedrin council is going to be like their last witness. And what do they do with their last witness? They stone him to death. So that's kind of like sealing their doom. So it, just like Peter is winding down, things are winding down with Israel. And things are beginning to start to happen with Paul and also with the Gentile world. So right now we're in a transitional time when we're speaking about Peter. I mean, uh, Stephen, Peter begins to fade from the record in the book of Acts once Paul is saved. Now we're going to read a little bit more about Peter in a few more chapters, but Paul begins to dominate from Acts chapter 13 to the rest of the book, all the way to chapter 28. So you got Peter, the first part of Acts, and you've got Paul, the last part of Acts, Peter to Israel, first part, Paul to the Gentile world, second part of Acts, and who is the bridge in between? Stephen. Stephen, it is so perfect. I forgot to tell you when I was talking about the 70, I was reading a whole lot of stuff this past week, and I learned that tradition, now you can't always trust what tradition tells us, but sometimes what tradition says gives you a little bit of more information to think about at least, okay? But tradition says that Stephen was one of the original 70, one of the 70 that Jesus sent out in pairs and had given the miracle you know, gifts. And if that is true, then Stephen knew Jesus even in the flesh and heard a lot of Jesus' messages, and he got it. He got a lot, because now remember, he is a Gentile Jew, and he wasn't as narrowly focused as the apostles who were all Hebrew Jews, and he got it. He got, if that's true, either way, he got it more than the apostles did. It took them years to understand what Stephen got right away. He was brilliant. He was kind of like the, the um, parallel with Meth- M- <laughs> Mary of Bethany. Think Of all women, she got it the most, right? Because she knew he was going to die and she anointed him and everything. Well, Stephen was the same kind of person. I mean, the light bulbs, he just understood so much. But Peter ministered to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Paul ministered to Gentiles in Gentile lands. But Stephen ministered to Jewish people from Gentile lands, the Grecian Jews of the Diaspora. Peter's primary ministry was to Jerusalem, Paul's primary ministry was to the world, and Stephen's ministry is what sent the church from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. And by the way, Stephen knew both of those fellows. He knew Peter. You know what? He knew Peter, and he knew all the apostles. He's one of them serving with him. And I think he had many debates with those guys trying to tell them things that he understood that they didn't get. And he was probably frustrated with them. And then he goes into the synagogues and tries to, to tell the unsaved Jews all the things that he knows. And he gets frustrated with them and they get mad at him. But anyhow, verse 9. I told you before, there's something really interesting hidden in this verse. It says, then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, which speaks of Asia Minor, disputing with Stephen. Now, scholars, I'm not going to get into all of this as I did yesterday. It took too long, but you can read it in your notes when you get them. Scholars are divided about the number of synagogues that are represented here. Some say there was only one synagogue. It was a synagogue of the Libertines and it was attended by all these people from other places. Others say there were five synagogues and some say there were three synagogues. I don't really think it matters, but uh, let me just explain what the term libertines means, because that's kind of interesting. That's not a place. They didn't come from liberty. (laughs) They're called libertines, which means freed men. You see, back in 63 BC, under general the the Roman general Pompey, he had marched into Israel and taken a lot of the Jewish people as slaves, captives, and he hauled them off to Rome, where they were slaves. Years later, they were freed. And they they left Rome and they went to live in other places. But they were always known as libertines, which means freed men. They had once been slaves and now they were free. Um, And this synagogue of the libertines would consist of Jews from the diaspora whose fathers and maybe grandfathers had been slaves but now were free. So they're called libertines. Um, Synagogues, do you know what synagogue means? It means gathering place. And they speculate that the synagogue began when the Jews were taken into captivity to Babylon, far away from the land. Besides that, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. It was in ruins, but all the Jewish people are in Babylon, so they can't worship in the temple. And so they established—they started meeting together, gathering together to maintain their faith and to teach their children and you know fellowship and all that in synagogues. It only took 10 adults to form a synagogue interestingly I found out that according to the Jewish Talmud at this time of the of the early church do you know how many synagogues there were just in Jerusalem 480 and you thought the church and Walgreens was the only two things that had a problem being on every corner 480 synagogues in one city? That's a lot. You see, um, the Grecian Jews that lived in the diaspora and spoke, you know, their mother tongue was not Hebrew. When they came to Jerusalem for the feasts, or if they came to Jerusalem to visit relatives or they came there for business purposes or sent their their sons there in order to, you know, from the age of 12 on to be educated by a rabbi or sit at the feet of Gamaliel or something like that. They had, they would have their own synagogue so that their people from, let's say you're from uh, uh, Alexandria, Egypt, which had a great, big, huge Jewish population, and every time you went to, to uh, Jerusalem, you wanted to meet with other people from Alexandria because they spoke your mother tongue. That makes sense, doesn't it? So that's why they had so many different synagogues in Jerusalem. Well, Stephen, who was a Grecian Jew himself, or not? We don't know where Stephen grew up. I don't know what country he came from but he was a grecian jew he was a greek speaking also hebrew speaking jew but he was from one of the gentile lands he went to the synagogues of acts 9 6 in order to present evidence for faith in jesus as messiah and lord and in doing this he was a forerunner of paul because isn't that exactly what paul would do in every city Paul visited, he would head straight to the local synagogue, and he would attempt to reason with the Jew, the Greek Jews of that synagogue. He would attempt to reason with them about Jesus, showing them from the Old Testament scripture why Jesus really was their Messiah. Who did Paul learn that technique from to go to the synagogues? Stephen. That's what Stephen is doing here, going to the synagogues, the Greek-speaking synagogues, and speaking to the people, debating with the people about why Jesus is their Messiah. And Stephen learned it from who? Jesus, exactly. Where did Jesus go? Remember when he was in his hometown of Nazareth? Where, Where was he? Went to the synagogue. And in the synagogue services, there was a time when they would allow a visiting rabbi or teacher to stand up, read a passage of scripture, and then expound on it a little bit. They allowed that. That would be total chaos if we did that in our churches, wouldn't it? Okay, anybody here want to say something? Oh, boy, that could get you in some trouble. But that's what they would do. Remember, Jesus stood up in his synagogue, and he read from Isaiah, and he said, this day has this been fulfilled in your your sight, and they wanted to stone him to death. Um, So Paul learned that technique from Stephen. Stephen learned that technique from Jesus. From Stephen... Of course, he was filled and he was led by the Holy Spirit, so this was the right thing to do for him to go into those synagogues. He was so full of faith, confident faith, and the Spirit, and grace, and power, and wisdom, and courage that he single-handedly went right up against the whole Jewish religious system to debate it for Christ. And he was persistent in doing that. How do I know? Well, look at verse 13. When his false accusers are accusing him, they say, this man ceaseth not to speak. He just kept it up. So you can add this attribute to his list of characteristics. He was persistent. He didn't stop speaking about Jesus in the synagogues. Now, regardless of how many synagogues there were, it appears that they collectively rose up together They had it, you know, they're going to all get together to dispute and debate against Stephen. So it was all of their Greek-speaking Jewish scholars against one man, Stephen. Thus those synagogues became the stage or they became the theater for the keenest and the brightest apologists of the old covenant to oppose the doctrine of those claiming a new covenant. And their man, their debater, was Stephen. Now there is something most interesting to take into consideration with the mention of the Jerusalem synagogue of Cilicia. You notice that's mentioned in verse 9? The synagogue of the Cilicians. Do you know the name of the primary city of the Roman province of Cilicia? Does anybody know the primary city of Cilicia? Speak it out. You do know, but you don't know you know. (laughs) The primary city of the province of Cilicia is Tarsus. Aha! I love to see the looks on your face when that happens. That's what happened to me last week. It was an aha moment. (laughs) Guess who was born in Tarsus of Cilicia? Saul. And guess who was in Jerusalem at this very time? of Stephen's debates with the scholars of the synagogue of Cilicia. We know Saul was there, no doubt about it. He's there when they stoned Stephen to death. He's the one who, you know what it actually says later on, and it's Paul's own words, he says that he was born in Tarsus, but he was raised in Jerusalem. I imagine his parents sent him to Jerusalem after his bar mitzvah, and there he sat since 12 years of age on to sit at the feet of Gamaliel. So he was from Cilicia, and he was in Jerusalem at this time, and you know he would have, when he went to synagogue, which synagogue would he have gone to? the one of his own, own hometown, Cilicia. The brainiest, the most zealous Greek and Hebrew and Latin and Aramaic-speaking young Jewish man Gamaliel had ever had as a student was there, and his name was Saul of Tarsus. Tradition also says, whether this is true or not, I don't know, but it sure makes it interesting, that Stephen was a student of Gamaliel. Hmm, if that's true, Saul and Stephen had known each other for a long time. And then Stephen turned traitor, didn't he? He became a believer in Christ. There's every reason, and every commentary I read agreed with this. There is every reason to believe that Saul was engaged in the heated debates with Stephen. Stephen. But Pharisee Saul of Tarsus, and he was a Pharisee. He was even the son of a Pharisee. Pharisee Saul of Tarsus of Cilicia, son of a Pharisee, meticulous observer of the law and the traditions of Judaism, student of the famous Gamaliel, was no match for the spirit-filled Christian table server named Stephen. Now, I've always told you that if there was one place I could be, go back in time in the Bible to listen to something. Maybe I would have wanted to see some things, but let's talk about hearing something. I would like to have been with those two on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus opened up the Old Testament and beginning with Moses showed how he was in the entire Old Testament, I would have loved to have been there and had my heart burn like theirs was and hear that sermon. It isn't recorded for us. But now I have another place I would have loved to have been. I would have loved to have been in the synagogues when the unregenerate Saul was debating the sanctified deacon Stephen. I would have loved to have heard that debate. Two of the best minds, one still in the Old Covenant and one fresh and new and understanding in the New Covenant. Mm, That would have been something. Now, that might not excite you, but that's my cup of tea. I would just get excited about being there. Do you know who won every single session of those debates? We know. We know who won every session that took place between the Grecian Jews of the synagogue and Stephen because the answer is given to us in verse 10. Nobody, either individually Or collectively, if they put all their brains together, nobody was able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spake. Wow, that is some mind, isn't it? That is some illumination that he had. The reference to the spirit there is not with a capital S, not talking about the Holy Spirit this time. This is talking about his own spirit. And it refers to the sincerity and to the zeal and the passion and even the compassion of his words, his own spirit. His words and the spirit in which he spoke them were irresistible. He had, Stephen had an irresistible ministry. Wouldn't you like one like that? irresistible ministry, do you know that his ministry was the fulfillment of a promise and a prediction that was made by Jesus himself? Want to look at it? You can. Luke 21 verses 13 to 15, Jesus was speaking to his followers and he told them that when they were persecuted and when they were delivered to the synagogues and to prison and when they were brought before rulers for his name's sake. Um, and they were given an opportunity to be a testimony for Christ, he told them that they were not to be unsettled in their hearts. What does that mean? Let not your heart be troubled. Don't worry about it. Don't let your hearts be unsettled. And then he said, or don't premeditate what you're going to say. I do that. I don't know why I do that all the time, but I think, what would I say if uh, I was about to be beheaded or something, and my final words was going to be like Joan of Arc and burned at the stake, you know. What would I say? <laughs> well, I shouldn't be worried about what I was going to say. He says, don't, let your, don't think about it. Don't premeditate about it. Why? Well, here's the promise. Jesus said, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Oh, yay, thank you. <laughs> I have a mouth, but I also need the wisdom. Which all your adversaries, all your enemies, shall not be able to gainsay. You know what that means? Refute nor resist. And that the fulfillment we see in Stephen. They could not refute or resist him. And the, therefore, the only things that those who disputed with Stephen could do about him, (laughs) you know, if they refused to have ears to hear, the only thing they could do about him was to go and bribe and coach men, false witnesses, against him to say untruths about him and to use those untruths to stir up the people, the citizens of Jerusalem, against him and then to pounce on him when he's alone and drag him off to the Sanhedrin, where they brought their false accusers. You know, if you can't win the debate, kill the guy. That's, that was their method. So let's look at the corruption against Stephen, verses 11 to 14. Then they suborned men, which means they not only bribed them with money, but they coached them what to say. They rehearsed them. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Notice who they put first? That's a telltale sign right there, isn't it? Moses and God? And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes and came upon him and caught him. That means violently seized him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. What are they talking about? The temple and the law, the law of Moses. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, you can just hear there discorn, this of Nazareth, you know, that nasty, despicable Nazareth. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. What place? The temple. And shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Okay, what does this remind you of? It's kind of like Calvary all over again, isn't it? The treatment of Jesus, I mean Stephen, by his own people is very similar to the treatment of the Jews against Jesus. The people of the Grecian Jewish synagogues, upset that they could not defeat Stephen fairly, with scripture, decided to defeat him unfairly. They suborned, they secretly induced men to say things, and you can pay men to just say about anything, right? Nothing has changed. You can do that today, you could do it back then. So they induced men with money to say things about Stephen that they knew would stir up the citizens of Jerusalem, exactly like they had done with Jesus. It is always so fascinating to me to see how fickle people can be. How fickle people can be. You know, on Sunday, remember the people were waving their, their um, palm branches and saying, Hosanna, as Jesus was rise, riding into Jerusalem. And on Thursday, what are they saying? Crucify him, crucify him. Well, same thing here. Remember the people in the city of Jerusalem had magnified the members of the church, the sect of the Nazarene. They lifted them up. They held them in high esteem. Even those who durst not join with them, Because they had such great fear of the Lord, seeing what he had done to Ananias and Sapphira. And yet they magnified the people. They saw their unity and their sincere love and their sharing of their possessions. And they held them in high esteem. And they were even bringing in their sick, laying them in the streets to be healed, even hoping that Peter's shadow might give some beneficial influence for somebody. But now these same people, the citizens of Jerusalem, just like that, they turn hostile when they hear the false message that Stephen was blaspheming Moses and God. It tells us how much the Jewish people thought about the law, right? Once the synagogue Jews had sufficiently worked up the people by saying, you know, these false witnesses saying that Stephen was against Moses and against the law, and he was, you know, talking about destroying the temple. Once they worked up the people, they got support from elders and scribes, and then they pounced on Stephen, got him when he was alone, didn't have a big crowd around him, and uh, they they brought him to the Sanhedrin, where their coached, false witnesses, <clears throat> said that Stephen didn't cease to speak blasphemy against the temple. They accused him of you know blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy. Blasphemy against God, blasphemy against the holy place, the temple, blasphemy against the law, and blasphemy against the customs of Moses. All those things. And uh, then they said, we heard him say that Jesus said that he would destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You know, he's being charged with being a revolutionary and making radical statements against the temple, against God, against Moses, against the law. Now, this is another similarity, isn't it, to the treatment of Jesus? Because wasn't he also falsely accused of blaspheming God? When he said, I and my father are one, ah, blasphemy. When he called God father and when he, you know, said basically I'm the son of God because he's my father, have the same nature, they accused him of blasphemy. But did he blaspheme God? Really? Did he blaspheme God? No, because what he said was true. And I'm sure Stephen went into these uh, Greek-speaking synagogues and said the same thing. Jesus is the Son of God. And so they accuse him of blasphemy. But was he blaspheming God? No, he wasn't because, again, he was speaking the truth. Although the Lord was accused also of attacking Moses and being against Moses and the Mosaic Law. Was that true? No, remember right away in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I have not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. He never, ever, ever talked about Moses. He he said Moses spoke about him. Actually, who gave the law to Moses? If you want to get right down to it, Jesus gave the law to Moses. It was the wrong interpretations of the law that Jesus corrected. You know, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, because they were always, you know, wrongly interpreting the law. And then it was the so many additional do's and don'ts that they had added and the traditions they had added that he condemned remember all their uh, traditions or their, their laws about the sabbath day just ridiculous absolutely ridiculous remember when the lord <laughs> was in the um, cornfield on the sabbath and he allowed his disciples to pluck some of the corn and eat it and the ubiquitous pharisees were there what were they doing in the cornfield i don't know but they were everywhere they said, aha, you've broken the Sabbath. And you know what Jesus said? He said, there is one among you who is even greater than the temple. Oh, my. But he never, he never blasphemed Moses. Since Stephen's accusers likewise said that he blasphemed Moses, we can be sure that he also went into those synagogues and he told the Jewish people that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. He he would have said that or something comparable to that. And you know who actually wrote those words later on? Saul, Paul. He would have told the Jews that he debated, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Put your faith in him, and all the law is fulfilled in you, for you. They couldn't refute it. And it sounded like blasphemy to them, so blaspheme. Lastly, Jesus never spoke against the temple. Actually, who was it that dishonored the temple? The religious rulers, they made it into a den of thieves. Jesus had a zeal for the temple. He didn't speak about against it. And when he had said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it back up. What was he talking about? The physical temple, Herod's temple? He's talking about his own body. But they took that and they twisted it and they used it over and over again. That he said he was going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, he could have done that if he wanted to. But that wasn't what he was saying. But if you really want to get down to the nitty-gritty who did eventually destroy the temple. Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus, used the Romans under General Titus Vespasian to destroy the temple in 70 AD. God did that. The Lord did that. He destroyed the temple. He used his instruments to destroy the temple because the people were so stiff-necked, they never got it. All that the temple prefigured was fulfilled in Christ. From the tabernacle on, it was all a picture. It was a figure of Christ. And all the rituals, all the sacrifices, all the ceremonies, all the feast days, all of that was over. The priesthood was over. That priest got that. Some of the priests got that, great company of them. They knew they were out of a job, that the sacrifices were over because there had been a once-for-all perfect sacrifice offered. And the law was fulfilled. We don't have the law. Do we have to obey all the Old Testament ceremonial law? No. The moral law, yes, that continues. But the ceremonial law is over with because Jesus fulfilled it. Um, and Stephen got all that. You know, they say that actually Stephen understood in seed form what later on the author of the book of Hebrews, who was the book of Hebrews written to? Hebrews, the Jews. Stephen got in seed form what the author of Hebrews later fleshed out. He got all that, that the whole system was just a shadow. Am I really late? Okay. Just a little bit. When my husband used to travel around the world with the Navy, and that's when I had three little ones, you know, three preschoolers, and he was gone all the time, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, I had a picture of Frank, you know, next to my bed because I missed him so bad he'd be gone for so long. You know, there was nobody to help me with the babies and the diapers and all that. But there was Frank's picture. Now, when Frank came home, did I need to just keep looking at Frank's picture? I mean, that would be silly when I had the reality right there with me. And that's what this was all about. They didn't need the pictures anymore. It was fulfilled. They had the reality. They had Jesus Christ. Well, more than any of the other apostles, Stephen had illumination regarding the ramifications of the new covenant. He was a Grecian Jewish Christian. So you know what? That was an advantage. Where did he live? Where had he lived? Out in Gentile lands. So he didn't have the narrow focus about the land. You know, the Hebrew Jews, especially the Pharisees around Jerusalem, were so proud of the land that any Jew who didn't live in the land was defiling himself because he lived out with the Gentiles. Stephen didn't have that narrow focus about the land and about the law. Well, he, he honored the law, but he understood now that it was fulfilled he still obeyed the moral law, but he understood all the ceremonial law was over with. And he knew as a Grecian Jew that all those foolish add-ons were add-ons. He didn't have Pharisees popping up in cornfields where he grew up, you know. So he knew that that was a lot of baloney, all that stuff. He didn't have the narrow focus about the temple, which was the pride of the Jews, you know, the, the temple. He, he honored the temple as long as it was served its purpose, But it wasn't like an idol in his life as it was to so many Jews. And, big advantage, he did not have the utter dislike of Gentiles. That was the way the vast majority of the Hebrew Jews looked on Gentiles. You know, when Peter was told to go and give the gospel to a Gentile named Cornelius, He did not like it. He fought against that. He didn't really, I mean, God had to make it crystal clear. Go give the gospel to a Gentile. And when he did and saw that, wow, Gentiles can be saved too. Amazing. And he went back and gave the report to the rest of the apostles. They could hardly handle it. It took them a long time to get to the point where Stephen was right now. Well, with all the accusations being stated against Stephen, the council... And all who are in there, and I believe Saul of Tarsus was there, because it says there were a lot of other, you know, the accusers were there, and I think Saul was at the head of all these accusations. So all these people are in the council chamber, and they're looking at Stephen. They're looking at him to see his reaction to the accusations. And what they saw was absolutely shocking. So let's look finally at the countenance of Stephen, verse 15. It says, and all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Would you all put on your angel faces for me? (laughs) That's good. That's good. (laughs) You know, Stephen so far, Stephen so far has said absolutely nothing in his defense. But somebody else did. The resurrected Lord spoke in his defense and he did it in an amazing way as all those members of the council and everyone else gathered in that room was looking at Stephen like a jury would do looking at the accused right to see how he reacts is he going to turn red with anger is he squirming in his chair is he looking guilty or you know whatever they're they're looking at Stephen to see his reaction and suddenly their focus becomes a steadfast gaze why Because his countenance was like that of an angel. Which is interesting because half of that group didn't believe in angels. (laughs) Do you know how angels' faces are described in the scripture? As lightning. Remember the tombstone angel outside of Jesus' tomb on resurrection Sunday morning? It says his countenance was like lightning. Okay, can you make your face look like lightning No, that is a supernatural thing, isn't it? No matter how sweet your little grandchildren are, they don't have faces like angels. (laughs) When they looked at Stephen, they did not see hate on his face. They did not even see horror on his face. They're probably going to kill me. You know what they saw on his face? They saw heaven. His face. This was truly the evidence of the full grace of God on him. This was not a human ability. You cannot, even if you get struck by lightning, your face isn't going to look like lightning. It's going to be black and your hair is going to be standing up like that. (laughs) This was the Lord God telling everybody that was present that Stephen was his servant. Surely that proud bunch of Old Testament scholars who had just been reminded three times of Moses, the law, Moses, the customs of Moses, those scholars would immediately recall the account of the glory of God glowing upon the face of Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai with the stone tablets of the Old Covenant. Back in Exodus 34, 29, 30, the glowing angelic face of Stephen was one of the greatest rebukes that God has ever given to calloused men. This was a rebuke of God. Stephen's opponents, the false witnesses, were screaming at him, Blasphemer, blasphemer, blasphemer. And he is silently standing there before them with the very holiness of God beaming forth from his face. If that isn't a rebuke, I don't know what is. If Stephen had blasphemed the law of Moses and God, then why would God put the same honor upon Stephen's face as he had put upon Moses? You get it? The glory of God on the face of Moses had been God's confirmation to Israel of the divine nature Of the law, the old covenant. You know, when he came down from that mountain glowing so much that he had to put a veil over his face because the people couldn't look at him, it was God confirming to Israel the old covenant that he had given it. The glory of God on the face of Stephen was God's confirmation to Israel of the divine nature of the new covenant. It was heaven's confirmation. Of everything that Stephen had declared in the synagogues, and it was God's confirmation of everything Stephen was about to say in chapter 7, which was the final witness to Israel. By honoring Stephen as he had honored Moses, the Lord God Almighty has told you and I that Stephen was one of the greatest men who had ever lived. Anyone else ever have the face, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God come beaming out of his face other than Moses and Stephen? Anybody? Just one. And his name was Jesus, and he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. So when I say, I don't say it flippantly, when I say that Stephen was one of the greatest men in all the Bible, he had an impact on another man that would literally turn the world around. You know, Stephen died not knowing the impact of his life. We may die not knowing the impact of our lives, right? He had no idea that his greatest enemy, Saul of Tarsus, maybe a guy he had known for years, that, that, that he had just been such a testimony to him that he would totally... Give his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Had no idea about that, did he? You know, Stephen is the only one who, that we read of in Scripture who got a standing ovation when he entered into heaven. Where has Jesus been ever since the ascension? Where does it say? He seated at the right hand of God the Father. But when Stephen was dying and he looked up, he beheld the Son of Man standing. You know Why? He was standing as a you know, standing ovation to bring Stephen home don't you want a testimony like that I can't think of someone I would more rather pattern my life after than Stephen. I mean other than Jesus and I can't attain that but Stephen 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 what a man thank you I'm so sorry I stayed over let's pray father thank you for the example of this wonderful man this godly Christ-like man And thank you too, Father, that we have known people. I know women in this room who have maintained this kind of steadfastness right into their senior years. Women who have gone on before us, who have maintained their testimony to the very end. What an example they are to us. May we, Father, each of us in this room be people with an irresistible ministry to our community and to our lost friends and to our lost loved ones. Give us opportunities, Lord, to speak words of your son that are your appeal, your wisdom, your words to lost people. We ask that you would put down the opposition and that you would make our faces to shine with your glory so that those who scrutinize us, those who are looking at us, those who are observing, to see if our walk matches our talk, may see Jesus in us. And may your work be accomplished for your glory in our lives. And we do pray in that blessed name of our Savior. Amen. God bless you.